0: This week on WealthTrack, Morningstar's personal finance guru, Christine Benn, shares her financial to-do list for 2020. Get ready to take notes next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack.
1: Funding provided by Morgan Le Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce & Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance.
0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. I am a procrastinator when it comes to finances. At the beginning of every new year or tax time when I am under the IRS deadline, I vow this year is going to be different and I will finally get organized and make decisions over time instead of at the last minute. Well, hope springs eternal. I decided I needed help, and why not share it with all of you? So for the second year in a row, we have invited one of our favorite guests, who is very knowledgeable and organized, to join us. She is Christine Benz, Morningstar's personal finance guru. Her official title is Director of Personal Finance, a position she has held since 2008. She writes daily personal finance columns for Morningstar, does interviews and podcasts, and is the author of several books, including 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances, and the Morningstar Guide to Mutual Funds, Five-Star Strategies for Success. She has also been a wealth track regular since the beginning. We asked her to take us through a financial to-do list for 2020. So get out your pens, papers, or smartphones and prepare to take notes. Her first recommended step is what she calls a wellness check.
1: I always say if you're starting any sort of portfolio checkup, start really big picture and ask yourself, am I on track with this plan? So if you're someone who's accumulating assets for retirement or other goals, but mainly retirement for most Mm -hmm. of us, you want to see if your savings rate is within the ballpark of what will get you to your eventual goals. So Mm -hmm. for most folks, I think 15% of income is a good target to shoot for in terms of ongoing savings. But see if you're on track, look at your current balance. I really love many of these retirement calculators where you can plug in a few variables, not too many, and have a sense of whether you will actually have enough in retirement. So I like T. Rowe Price's retirement income calculator. Vanguard has a nice one called the retirement nest egg calculator. Sample a few of these Mm -hmm. to get differing opinions about how you're doing. So that's for people who are saving for retirement. right? People who are already retired, your big number is what your withdrawal rate Mm -hmm. looks like. So 4%, people may have heard taking 4% of your balance in year one of retirement. That's a good starting point for thinking about whether you're over or maybe under spending. But do some work in terms of looking back on the past year to see what you've actually spent from your portfolio. Is it within the ballpark of something that will be sustainable over your whole retirement time horizon?
0: You said look at what the best returns on your investments were. So take us through that exercise. What does that mean?
1: Well, I like the idea of looking holistically at all of your capital allocation choices. Uh-huh. So for many of us, we might have a 401k that we can contribute to, and we might get matched on those contributions. If we have earned income, we can contribute to an IRA. So those are outright investment allocations.
0: So your contributions, we still have time for 2019 contributions, right? You do for
1: your IRAs right. and for your health savings accounts. You have time to get your contributions in into those plans until April 15th for 2019. And right. think of other allocations of your capital. So mm-hmm. a lot of people have mortgages, for example, even though their interest rates on those mortgages might be nice and low, maybe they're not able to deduct that interest right. anymore more Um, I think for a lot of folks, especially for people who have liquid assets set aside and very low returning investments, if you plan to stay in the house, and of course, it's a very personal decision with a lot of personal factors mixed up in it. But if you plan to stay in your house, one of the best things you can do, especially as retirement approaches, is pay that thing off Mm -hmm. because your investments on your low returning safe assets will not beat your mortgage interest rate, even if it's a pretty low interest oh, rate. That's
0: such an interesting point. So the step two that you're recommending for us is a portfolio positioning checkup. And you know, review your investments. So what are we looking for when I review my investments?
1: Well, again, I would start big picture. So start with your total portfolio's asset allocation Mm -hmm. so you can see how much you have in U.S. stocks and foreign stocks and bonds and cash as well. And so look at that for many of us if we've just been letting things ride and that's been pretty easy to do as the market's been
0: right. strong. Right, especially in the U.S., right.
1: right. So you've been seeing your equity holdings drift ever higher. If you're getting close to retirement, or I would say even within 10 years of retirement, you may want to look at de-risking because oh. you may be high on stocks relative to whatever your targets are.
0: And, and, you know, assess your liquid reserves. So are are there rules of thumbs for, you know, different ages or what would you recommend?
1: Definitely. So for people Mm -hmm. who are still working and earning an income, think the rule of thumb of holding three to six months worth of living expenses in very liquid cash act assets that you can grab in a pinch. Right. I think that's a good strategy. We've got more and more folks, though, working in the gig economy yes. or working on in contract jobs where maybe their income is a little bit lumpy and they have periods of unemployment. If that were me, I'd want to have a bigger cushion. So that's working folks. For people who are retired, I like the idea of holding one to two years worth of portfolio withdrawals. And why why is that? Well, the basic idea is that you're kind of giving yourself a buffer in case stocks or bonds encounter a period of volatility. The idea is that if you have some cash built into your plan, you're not having to touch those assets when they're in a trough. So I think holding one to two years worth of liquid reserves is a good starting point, but you don't want to overdo it because the opportunity cost of overdoing cash can be really great.
0: Right review or create an investment policy statement what should an investment policy statement look like
1: well it doesn't need to be a binder with lots of elaborate <laughs> details i think it's just a plan that sets out what you are doing in terms of your savings rate if you're still accumulating assets what your target asset allocation is and how that might change over time i think you should also specify what you're looking for in your investments mm-hmm. so what are you holding them to and what will be lists for you actually selling things. In your portfolio. And finally, I think it's important to put in how often you'll review your plan because I know a lot of investment hobbyists who probably spend too much time tinkering and right. might make changes to their portfolios that in hindsight weren't necessary, may have incurred tra- tax costs or trading costs. So I think it's good to spell out in your plan how often you'll check up on it. If you ask me, I think a good once annual okay.
0: checkup is plenty. And, and- create a retirement policy statement. So what should my retirement policy statement have in it? I love the
1: idea of having a retirement policy statement. So you're spelling out a few different things. You're spelling out importantly, your approach to withdrawals. Uh So how much you'll take from your portfolio each year and how that might change. So some people might say, well, I want to kind of tether this to what's going on in my portfolio. If the market's down, I probably don't want to take as much from my portfolio. So you'll specify your approach to changing that withdrawal rate based on. On market conditions. Right. You'll talk about how you're managing to extract cash flows from your portfolio mm-hmm. because income is not what it used to be. Income right, not is at really, all. really low. So most investors today need to use some combination of Income distributions plus rebalancing, so periodically trimming appreciated positions to meet their cash flow needs. So spell those things out. Spell out your approach to Social Security and when you'll take mm-hmm. Social Security. I really like the idea of clarifying that before you get into retirement so you're not figuring it uh, figuring it out on the fly. The
0: importance of writing things down and having a re- your retirement policy statement that you actually can look at and you can track. So why is that so important, do you think?
1: Well, I think behaviorally, Mm -hmm. if we go to the bother of writing something down, we're kind of holding ourselves to something. Right. So I think there's something to that. But I also think there's something to transition planning or succession planning. So if, if for whatever reason... The investor is unable to continue managing the plan, or maybe it's Mm -hmm. just temporarily Mm -hmm. sidelined. Interesting. If there's an adult kid, or maybe an adult uh, financial advisor who's brought in to help make sense of what's going on with the plan, I think having some of these policy statements can be really clarifying for them and help ease these transitions. And therefore,
0: these should be shared. Absolutely right with other a, a professional or a, and and or family or whatever it, somebody that should be aware that you've got this and that this is how you want to, your financial affairs to be conducted. Exactly right. Okay, that's that's an important point. Tell us why you're so obsessed with long-term care.
1: Well, a couple of reasons. One is that my mom and dad both had dementia toward the end of their lives, mm-hmm. and. They both had very good quality long-term care at home in line with their wishes, but it was a hard process. And so I think a lot about how many families are going through this. I talk to a lot of people who are um, getting close to retirement and really thinking about the impact of long-term care costs on their finances because, of course, the financial component can be huge. Mm -hmm. And it's also just a fast-changing landscape where we've seen... Costs escalate on the policies. People who thought they were doing just the right things by purchasing long-term care policies in some cases have had to deal with very high premium increases.
0: Mm-hmm. And also it's, it's you know, the, the number of, of firms that are providing long-term care policies has shrunk dramatically. Um, a lot of firms, right, underestimated how much it would cost for them to be you know, pay out these policies, exactly. and so they they were getting out of the business. So, so for someone who doesn't have a long term care policy, what are our options?
1: Well, there are, still are some pure right. standalone long term care policies, but the underwriting standards can be very stringent. Mm-hmm. People are not able to buy them because of health considerations. Uh, there are increasingly what are called hybrid long term mm-hmm. care life insurance policies, and the basic idea is that it's a life insurance policy, or there are some annuities that have a long-term care rider Mm -hmm. associated with it. So the basic idea is if you need long-term care, you reduce the eventual death benefit associated with that life insurance policy. So I think that optionality is attractive, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the ability to at least have something left over in case you don't end up needing long-term care. You have that life insurance benefit. So I think it's something to look at, and I think it's Mm -hmm. particularly attractive for people who have some kind of a permanent life insurance policy that they no longer have a need for. Mm -hmm. So a great example would be the person who had young children at one time. That's why they bought the life insurance policy. Now they don't have young children. right? But they do have this looming concern of what high long-term care costs later in life will mean to their estate Mm -hmm. plan. Mm -hmm. So I think that being able to exchange the life insurance policy for the hybrid policy kind of elegantly hands off one risk for the other current greater risk.
0: And, and and, And many insurance firms are willing to offer you that that option. Right. right it's you can a, actually called the
1: 1035 exchange. Okay. And it's also something that should be tax efficient. So it's something to ask your financial advisor about whether he or she thinks that's a good idea for you. Right.
0: Um, take steps to reduce the tax bill in 2019 and beyond. So start us with that. You're saying how important it is. I, I mean, I'm a last minute person, Christine. I'm sure <laughs> you're not. But the documentation for the tax season, we should start doing it now. <laughs> well, at least as it
1: rolls in, put it in the file yeah, okay, so that okay. it's all in one spot. Um, <laughs> so we will start to get the, the 1099s that accompany our investments that tell us what we received in terms right. of dibi- dividends and capital gains from our investments. Uh, people who are employed also get W-2s from their employers. So definitely put all those documents in a central place so that you can access them as you need
0: them. Yeah. And um, conduct a tax audit. So what does that mean?
1: Well, one thing we've seen is that for investors who have mutual funds in their taxable portfolios... We've had this unfortunate thing going on where investors have been pulling money from traditional mutual funds, putting them in exchange-traded funds, which may be for their own good, and there's a lot that's good about that, but the unfortunate side effect is that if you've stuck around in a traditional mutual fund, that has meant that your manager has had to raise cash to pay off these departing shareholders. And so funds have had Ah. enormous capital gains distributions, if you're a taxable investor, that translates into a tax bill mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. So take a look at your holdings. If you did see a lot of capital gains distributions, you may want to investigate whether it makes sense to make some changes to make your portfolio tax efficient right. going forward. The hitch is that if you sell a security, you could trigger your own tax bill. So mm-hmm. there are two sets of taxes that fund shareholders pay. So just investigate with uh, an accountant whether that's the best course of action before you rip the Band-Aid off. But I think for many investors, gravitating to some of those more tax-efficient investments
0: makes a lot of sense. Right. Step four. This sounds all part and parcel of of it, but it's to get organized, as you're telling us and figure out what to save and what to shred and
1: people save way too much so uh, sometimes we'll help people look through their documents and see a lot of prospectuses things that are absolutely inessential to save. right and the other thing to know is that financial firms are responsible now for tracking our cost basis for us so unless you have owned securities for many years in Mm -hmm. which case you're responsible for tracking cost basis for those shares You should be able to retrieve a lot of the information that you need in terms of your own trading from the firm.
0: One of the most interesting points under the get organized uh, step was that you said to create a master directory, basic documents and financial accounts and everything else. So talk to us about creating a master directory.
1: This is another, I think, piece that gets back to succession planning, transition Mm -hmm. planning. The basic idea is that you are creating a document with each of your holdings, not granularly, but each of your accounts, Mm -hmm. account number, firm where you hold the money, any individual that you deal with at that firm. You're putting this in either a paper document or a spreadsheet. You are... If it's a paper document, putting it under lock and key. Right. If it's a a spreadsheet, you are password protecting or encrypting that document, because you've got sensitive information here. But the basic idea is that you have a list for your loved ones or mm-hmm. a financial advisor to be able to look at, kind of a guide of, of what you own and where you own it. And I think that that can really help if, again, something happens to derail you from managing your right. assets for- even a short period of time. No, no,
0: absolutely. I mean, my dad had one, and, and it was, you know, it was a godsend. It really helped a lot. That step five is to attend to your estate plan. And of course some people say, you know are saying to themselves, well, I don't have an estate, so I don't right. really have to worry about it. But you're saying no, this is just for anyone who has any assets whatsoever. Right. Right.
1: And that's the thing. I think people
0: might see these very
1: high estate tax thresholds mm-hmm. today. But there are smaller things that we should all be doing, specifically powers of attorney mm-hmm. for our financial and health care matters, right. naming individuals to step in and make decisions on our behalf if we for whatever reason are unable right. to. So. Uh-huh. Guardianships for minor children, of course, are huge. Wills, uh, keeping your will up to date as your situation mm-hmm. changes is absolutely crucial. A lot of people kind of one and done, you know, might have done right. a will 20 years ago, and a lot of things have, have changed. changed. Right. Beneficiary designations, I think, are so underrated in the realm of estate planning. And,
0: and talk to us about that, because the beneficiaries, I know, uh, you know, for instance, with IRAs, It's, you know, a lot of people have old beneficiaries, and guess what? No matter what your will says, um, it's going to go to whoever's on your, your IRA as your beneficiary. That's exactly right. 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 So people sometimes will go through the trouble and the
1: expense of creating estate planning documents, mm-hmm. but if they don't go back and make sure that their beneficiary designations sync up right. with those documents, they're sunk. What What's in the beneficiary designations, as you said, Consuelo, will drive what happens with the plan. So check up on that. Make sure that the beneficiary designations are in line with what you want. Another thing to keep in mind is sometimes providers change. So your mm-hmm. 401k provider may have gone from Fidelity to Schwab or whatever, right. um, not to single them out, but the, no, no, the beneficiary designations might not necessarily port over to oh. the new providers. So oh, that's check on that as well.
0: Right. Th- this one really hit home with me. So your digital estate is a whole other separate kind of accounting thing that you've got to keep track of and... Right, Right.
1: and and give someone else some responsibility for in case something should happen to you. Firms differ in their approaches to what will happen to people's accounts if they die, for example. Right, with password access. Right,
0: Uh huh.
1: right. So um, leave a paper, maybe not a physical paper trail, (laughs) but leave some information for your loved ones about your accounts and about any important digital assets that you hold. So, for example, maybe you have some sort of treasure trove of photographs or Mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. like that that you think might be worth something. Well, in that case, you'd want to definitely let people know that that is part of your estate, even though they are digital assets. Right.
0: So step six, Christine, of your your plan for us, your to-do list for 2020, is get a plan for charitable giving.
1: Charitable giving has really changed a lot in the wake of the tax laws, or at least tax-wise, it's changed a lot. And the reason is that with new higher standard deductions, that means that many fewer of us are itemizing our deductions. And so charitable contributions are an itemized type of deduction. So the name of the game with charitable contributions, if you want it to ta- to count from a tax standpoint, is go big. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that you want to, at least in a few years, clear that standard deduction amount with your itemized
0: deductions. So you aggregate maybe exactly. all of your charitable deductions and then give it in like one year so that you... Qualify for the, oh, you go above the standard deduction or That's whatever? That's exactly right. All right, interesting. And of
1: course, charities don't like that because they would rather that you <laughs> yes, contribute you, regularly. Yes. So, a nice um, sort of middle ground is that you can use what's called a donor advised right. fund in that year in which you bunch together your charitable contributions, make a large charitable contribution to the donor-advised fund, then you can send the charities of your choice regular ongoing contributions. Right, and, and
0: then you said for uh, qualified charitable distributions, uh, so QCDs, To explain what those are.
1: This is just a fabulous strategy for people who are post age 70 and a half, so right. they're subject to required minimum distributions from the, their IRAs. IRAs. What they can do is have their investment provider work with the charity or charities of their choice to send a portion of their required minimum distributions directly to charity Mm -hmm. and the benefit of that is that those amounts that go out through this qualified charitable distribution don't affect your adjusted gross income. So you can keep your income down Right. in contrast with an RMD that you take and spend. Which is taxable, right. Exactly. So there are a lot of benefits you can contribute up to $100,000 of your RMDs to charity via the QCD. But you don't need to be a big giver. You can be a much smaller Mm -hmm. giver. But if you are subject to RMDs, my bias would be to run it through the qualified charitable distribution. It will tend to be better than taking the money out,
0: depositing it, and trying to deduct it it on your tax return. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So that kind of completes the steps that you've given us, Christine. But you know, we always ask every guessed if they would uh, recommend a one a, a one investment. So if you would recommend a one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, and you can do it within the context of this 2020 financial okay. to-do list or not, what would it be?
1: Well, I've been uh, talking a lot about de-risking. Yes. We, we talked about how investors' equity allocations are high. And so I think of a good core fixed income fund, mm-hmm. Dodge & Cox Income is one that comes to mind. It's um, kind of a Contrarian-minded bond fund, uh-huh. in that the managers like to buy mainly corporate bonds when they think they're a little bit not distressed, but when when they're maybe a little bit underappreciated, and so their yields are a little bit higher than they otherwise would be. So it's a sturdy strategy. Dodge and Cox has been in business for many many time. years. Right. Super steward of shareholder capital. Very low expenses, which is something that I always look for, especially with bond funds. Right. Um, so I think it's a nice. Uh, Uh, complement to investors' equity-heavy portfolios. It's a way to de-risk a little bit.
0: So, Christine Benz, thank you so much for joining us from Morningstar. Director of Personal Finance, you always have such fabulous advice and information for us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Consuelo.
0: At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is rebalance some of your U.S. stock exposure to foreign stocks. The S&P 500 has outperformed Europe, the U.K., Japan and emerging markets over the last decade, which means the place to trim is in your U.S. holdings. The place to add would be to overseas markets. Wherever you have the least exposure and are the most reluctant to invest are probably good places to start. As the late risk historian Peter Bernstein used to tell us, you are not truly diversified until you own something you are uncomfortable with. I would qualify that by eliminating investments in countries that lack a rule of law. Even discomfort diversification has its limits. Next week on WealthTrack, great investor Bill Wilby will identify two mega investment themes and how he is positioning his personal portfolio for the new decade. We appreciate those of you connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And we want to thank all of you for watching and hope you have a lovely weekend. Make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.